you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter number 12 this morning. Mark chapter number 12. And that's where we'll be. If you're visiting with us, we have, uh, I don't know, we have some visitors today. We welcome you to this meeting and gathering of Christ Bible Church. Pray that the Lord just ministers to your heart. Um, but to bring you up to speed just a little bit, um, over the past year or so, um, we've taken it as our task to just simply preach verse by verse through the book of Mark. So that's where we'll be this morning. We'll pick up in the same portion of Scripture that we left off last week. And, um, and pray that the Lord blesses as we desire and, and pursue to preach the, the whole counsel of God as long as the Lord um, will allow us. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And we're just reading three verses this morning. We'll pick up in verse number 35, and where you read these words by Mark. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Let's pray. Father, again, we just praise you for the privilege of gathering this morning and pray, Lord, um, that you'll bless your word. Father, we, um, we come to your word, I pray expectantly. I, come, I pray that we sit before um, not merely a book with ink written upon a page, Lord, but I'm recognizing that this is the eternal Word of God. Father, it's supernatural, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides us under the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. So, Father, um, I pray that you would accomplish that this morning. Father, I pray that the reason that the Word was given, um, that, it, that, that, that Christ would receive to that end. So, Father... Um, would you take your word to the very deepest recesses of our souls, Father? Would you um, do what Paul writes to Timothy, Lord? Would you instruct us? Would you um, teach us? Would you convict us? Would you rebuke us, Father? Would you um, make us the men of God that you desire for us to be, the women of God that you desire us to be, Father? Instruments of righteousness, perfectly thrush, thoroughly furnished, Father, for every good work. Uh, we need that, Father. There is just so much in our lives that... Um, that we fall short, Father, and uh, we persevere by, by faith, and we persevere, Father, by faith that is instilled in us by your Spirit through your Word. So God, take your Word, Father, to places this morning that it's never been in our, in our souls, and utilize it to the glory of God in so many practical ways. So for the next hour, Lord, would you just help us to stay our minds on you, even as the, even as the Word is preached, Father. May you just minister to my own heart. Um, God is... As I hear the message once again that you've been working in my heart all week. So, Lord, um, we love you. We thank you for your word and just pray that um, the next hour is honorable to Christ and exalting his name. Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you will, you can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Again, we, were, um, we pick back up in the book of Mark, chapter number 12, verses 35 through. I'm 37. And you may remember um, kind of the episode that we are in. I believe that this account that we read here in this portion of Scripture piggybacks or may very well piggyback and be born out of the previous account and the previous question. 
you may remember that our Lord encounters a zealous young man in the previous portion. Um, and maybe we could even read a portion of that. In verse number 28, one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him a question. Um, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him and he goes on to quote Deuteronomy chapter number 6 verses 4 and 5 as well as Leviticus um, chapter 19 and verse number 18. And together those two passages of scripture are married to give us the first and second greatest commandment. Um, what Jesus refers to as the entirety of the law hanging upon. In another portion of Scripture, he, 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 he refers to it as the summarization of the entirety of the, of the law. Everything could be summed up in those two commands, love God and love your neighbor. Um, this scribe or this Pharisaic lawyer, Matthew tells us, is, um, is, is somewhat of a unique occurrence in the Scriptures, particularly in the Gospels. Um, he seems to be a zealous young man with a, a purposeful intent and a true desire to know the, the reality of the truth. But it doesn't seem that he's totally ignorant of it and somewhat comes to test our Lord as well um, because he's in total agreement once um, he's, he's done. And you read that in verses 32 and verses 33. Um, Jesus looks at him in verse number 34, and when Jesus had saw that he answered wisely, speaking of that young man, um, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. And verse number 35, you read this, then Jesus, so the same episode, answered and said, or at least a following episode, he's in the same area, he's in the same environment that he has been for several passages now, and he takes up um, and turns the table in some sense and now begins to be um, the great questioner. Um, the Word of God here, literally ministering the Word of God to them. God of very God who John says tabernacled or dwelled among them now stands in the permanent tabernacle, um, the temple, the dwelling place of God established out of the Old Testament. And now that true temple of God, Jesus Christ, stands in the temple created um, by His organization, His decree, but by man's hands. And a place where God dwells with them Christ enters in and now the very presence of God has returned to the temple and He begins to minister. He has been, but now He, he turns the table um, in some way and begins to ask them the question. The Pharisaic lawyer um, had some sense of an understanding of the kingdom. He understood the kingdom not as simply physical or material. He understood it in some way spiritual because He's in total agreement with our Lord. Um, it begins in the heart. It's, you know, the kingdom is, in some sense, the great commandments are grounded in the very character and the nature of God. It's more than just mechanics. It's more than just physical um, obedience. It's summed up in, in love. So he's on the right track, and Jesus acknowledges that in his response. And then our Lord turns, possibly to him, but no doubt to the entirety of the crowd, and asks them a question. And it may, it may very well be that Christ here is providing a question to provoke the man's thinking concerning what he lacked, a right understanding of the Messiah. You know, as we said last week, um, what you find in this man is what you find in many men throughout scriptures and maybe what we find in us some days and maybe ultimately in you, you know? Um, somebody who is so close to the kingdom, yet not. I'm legalists who 
find themselves leaning on the law of God in an inappropriate manner to gain some stature with God, thinking that they can save themselves or be saved by how good they are, how righteous their acts. This young man understands that that's not a reality, but he doesn't understand it fully, fully, fully it seems. There's something that he's missing, and, and it may very well be um, a misunderstanding of who the Messiah is, that all the doctrine in the world that, 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 that theologians, um, uh, no doubt in my mind, have for generations and will continue um, to go to hell with the, with the greatest of sinners um, from our perspective. Um, why? Because ultimately they, they lean upon their own selves and upon their own works to merit a salvation that can only be purchased by the Messiah himself. This may be a condemnation of the Pharisees and their refusal to believe in the, Jesus as the Messiah, um, but it also may be just a most gracious invitation for that one who is near the kingdom to come on in. And what he needs to understand is who the Messiah is and what he will do and what he will be. To be saved, one does not need to have all of the Bible ironed out in their thinking. But one thing that they do have to have right is who is the Messiah. You can be wrong about a lot of things. We can be wrong in this church about a lot of things. But we cannot be wrong about Christ. Paul is pretty clear in Galatians that if you get Christ wrong, that if you preach another gospel, um, then you are accursed. You are, as he says, damned. Thus, we must labor um, day in and day out, and we must labor week in and week out um, to iron out our theology. But more than that, um, we must have a true and a right understanding of who Christ is. Many will not perceive it so, that this is a gracious invitation, but more of a condemnation. And maybe it is. Maybe here it's a double-edged sword. If this is a word that will solidify um, the hardness of heart and many that will hear, but at the end of this portion, you can, you can see that um, black portion if you have a red letter Bible and it says, and the common people heard him gladly. I have to believe that there was a portion of people there that were truly, truly enamored by our Lord's teaching. Maybe this young man, if none of, them, none of the others, um, was truly convicted by a gracious God and pursuing by God's gracious intent um, how to truly be saved. And our Lord provoked something in his mind to aid him in thinking through who the Messiah truly is. The series of discussions ends with Jesus again taking the initiative and asking the question, although it won't be a question about taxes. It's not a question about the resurrection. It won't be a question that while important is not, uh, may not be essential. And isn't that always what the skeptics want to talk about, right? They want to talk about taxes. They want to talk about the, the, the non-essentials. They want to talk about doctrinal issues that are the periphery. I don't know if you've ever engaged people in conversations about religion. That's what they love to talk about. <laughs> they love to talk about speaking in tongues. They love to talk about um, prophetic things. They love to talk about all of the, the, the religious paraphernalia, the, the peripheral um, things. And they generally avoid the gospel. I'm thankful for our Lord who always seems to bring it back to that which matters the most. And that is the gospel. Again, our Lord is inside the temple grounds just a few days before He's murdered. 
And his presence um, has, has provoked essentially all of the religious and political parties within the nation of Israel. As you'll remember that we talked about um, the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, essentially the representatives from the Sanhedrin, the highest uh, moral elite and religious party of the day. And our Lord has taken them to task and they've left them, I think, now five and oh. Um, and they don't want to ask any more questions. So again, our Lord turns to them. He's teaching and preaching as the uh, verse in uh, verse number 35 says, and Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple. So he continues to preach. He continues to teach the gospel of the kingdom, repentance and faith um, about the truth and reality of, of who he is. And he begins with a question like this. How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? That's the question there in verse number 35. This is the table turned. This is the question that he's going to ask. Um, how is it that the scribes say, and there's no doubt many of them there, that Christ is the son of David? Um, at that point, they're probably thinking, um, how ridiculous is this guy? That's common teaching, you know. Are you suggesting that it's not? If you were to read Matthew's account in Matthew 22 and verse number um, 41, um, he notes some interaction with the Pharisees that Mark doesn't um, give us here. In Matthew 22 and verse 41, you read the account like this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they say to him, The son of David. They knew that the Messiah that was to come was to be a son of David. How did they know that? Because the Old Testament has been abundantly clear um, with expectation that the Messiah, when He came, He would be the Christ, the Anointed One, um, the, anoint, the, the One who would come from the lineage of David. Jesus asked in Matthew, what do you think about the Christ whose son is He? And they, without skipping a beat, know the answer. He is the son of David. But Jesus then turns the question in Matthew 22, how then does David in the Spirit call Him Lord? Um, you don't actually think that David, arguably the greatest king of Israel, they're saying, is going to call his son Lord, right? A father has authority over his own son, not the son over the father. This is pro possibly what's going through their mind. This is something that they had never really considered. And this would have been considered common knowledge that he's the son of David, but not common knowledge that the Messiah would be God. And it's not because... It was not in the Old Testament. It was because it was something that had never dawned on their minds. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, um, we read of the Messiah coming out of the lineage of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, God is speaking to Nathan the prophet um, to prophesy to David, and here's part of what he says. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'll set up a seat after you. He'll come from your body and will, I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I'll be His Father. He shall be My Son. If He commits iniquity, I will chasten Him with a rod of men which blows of the sons of men. But mercy shall not depart from Him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from you before. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. David receives this covenant promise. 
as God covenants with him. And the, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, the, the men of the religious elite know that. They know that the Messiah um, is going to come out of the lineage of David because of the promises that God had made to him. Um, in Psalm chapter number um, 89 and verse number 3, um, you read these words. I have made my covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? Um, Psalm chapter number 132. Um, you continue to see this promise, this covenant that's made with David, reiterated. Psalm 132 and verse number 10. Um, you read these words. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not return from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. It is in the prophets as you go on past the book of Psalms, you move on past Second um, Samuel, it's in the prophets that you become even more narrow and focused concerning the son of David. You find references to it in places like Isaiah chapter number nine. You remember that great old test or that old Christmas text for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over, this king, over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 11.1 1 is another one. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. And then in verse number 10, you read these words. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Again, we're, we're fine-tuning, we're focusing in more. Who shall stand as a as a, a, a Savior to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek Him, and His resting place shall be glorious. There's a very good reason why it's the root of Jesse and not the root of David. It's because there was one that would come that is like David, but better than David. The root, the branch of the Lord, we see in Jeremiah 23 and verse number 5, where Jeremiah prophesies that God would raise up the branch of David who would come and rule over His people. Ezekiel 34 is almost totally devoted to God raising up a shepherd unlike any other shepherd in the nation of Israel who would rule over His people. From David until the time of Christ, the people had a longing and an expectation that the Messiah would come and that this Messiah would come. And just as David ruled over his people as a king and a shepherd to Messiah, so, so Messiah would too come and be an even greater shepherd and an even greater king. So, uh, so Jesus is provoking their thoughts about what they believe about about the Messiah, about the Christ, about the anointed one. Matthew, um, this is not only in the Old Testament. It's not only that, and the significant issue is not that, 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 that it's not there. 
Um, the, the question that he's asking, it's him provoking thinking for them to come to the conclusion um, that he is greater than what they perceive him to be. Um, this is not foreign to the New Testament either. Matthew chapter 12, people ask him, this is not the son of David, is it? Why did they ask him that? Because he was doing things that they believed that the Messiah would do. You remember in the book of Mark, blind Bartimaeus, what does he cry out? Uh, son of David, have mercy upon me. Just a few moments earlier, a few passages, a few weeks ago, we were in that great triumphal entry. Hosanna to the son of David, many cried out. The crowds began to realize that this man Jesus was none other than David's long-expected son, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus is now going to show them a vital portion of the puzzle that they're missing concerning the Messiah and being the son of, of David. So in uh, Mark chapter number 12, and I believe it's verse number 36, um, you read these words. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse number 37, this is the Lord's conclusion. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So what Jesus does is in common rabbinic tradition, even as you see some of the rabbis previous to him do, is that he brings two realities together that the Old Testament teaches, two truths and he brings them together to provoke their thinking on something that they had never thought before. They may be wondering, how in the world would you conclude that Jesus is David's Lord? Um, and what does our Lord do but quote Scripture? Psalm chapter number 110 is that portion. You may have a Bible that that's in italicized. Um, you may have a Bible that that's in capital letters where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. That's a direct quote from Psalm chapter number 110. Um, who does Jesus believe wrote Psalm 110? David. Um, all three of the Gospels conclude, and that, that may not sound significant to you, but that's significant um, for us. That's significant for the people of today um, because most common scholars, commentators, even Christians, um, Jewish people have argued against that, that this is not a Psalm of David. But for this argument to make sense, and for this to carry weight in their minds, um, it, is, it is directly essential for the argument for this to be written by David. Um, Jesus believes beyond a shadow of a doubt, and the Scripture even says in Psalm chapter number 110 that this is a Psalm of David. So David is writing these words. Um, Jesus believes but that David not only wrote the words, but he wrote the words by the very Spirit of God. Or I think Matthew puts literally in the Spirit. That Jesus Christ believes in the, the preservation and the inspiration of Old Testament Scriptures. Um, that God operated through men um, to record the very Word of God. And that one of those men that He utilized, Jesus testifies to the fact that, that David wrote the very Word of God. And that this is His Word. That the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Psalm 10 is just a blessing to the church. It's been a blessing to the church throughout the ages. Not only that, it was a blessing to the New Testament writers. It was a blessing particularly to the New Testament church and should be us as well. Psalm 10 is the, the most quoted and alluded to psalm in the entirety of the New Testament. But it's not only the most 
quoted and alluded to psalm in the entirety of the New Testament. It's the most quoted passage or alluded to passage in the entirety of the New Testament. The, the, the New Testament writers, uh, men like the writer of Hebrews, men like the Apostle Paul, uh, just, just loved this text. And so did our Lord. You'll find it quoted um, in Acts chapter number 2 as Peter preaches. You'll find it quoted multiple times in Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 5, and, and later in Hebrews as well. You'll find it quoted in uh, and alluded to um, in multiple places all throughout the New Testament. You'll find it quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Um, and you'll find our Lord here quoted and begin this cascade of quotes um, all throughout the New Testament as he embraces Psalm 110 as the very inspired word of God and, and a foundational text to argue the very deity of himself, the deity of the Messiah. You can imagine the ruckus that our Lord is causing in the minds of the scribes here. Um, I'm sure a Bible study started that night concerning Psalm 110. As they read, would read Psalm 110 or sing it in the synagogue, it, never, it seems to have never crossed their minds that, that that psalm was speaking of the Messiah um, in the way that Jesus commends it to their ears. What in the world was it about that passage that just caught Christ as well as the New Testament writers um, by such attention? In this psalm, we have a picture of someone who is both king and priest, as well as prophet. The term Messiah or anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three offices that required anointing. Prophet, priest, and king. You find in Psalm 110, all of those are presented. Here we have a priestly and a kingly ministry of the Messiah. And up to this point, if the Jews during that period of time also, we could provide quotes, where they would have believed that this would have been a messianic psalm. What I mean by that, that this would have been a psalm that testified that the Messiah was to come and the character and the nature of that Messiah, um, that they believed that. The church has, has agreed throughout the ages for 2,000 years that this is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm that preaches of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah that would come and give us some kind of idea into who that would be, thus that we could recognize Him when He came. Psalm 110, thus the Lord said to my Lord. Again, David's writing this. Why is it so significant? Um, because the Lord said to my Lord. That's why that phrase is the idea that he is honing in on. If you have, you may have a, 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 a New Testament that, or a, an Old Testament that the translators utilize capital letters um, with significant words that were utilized by God. For example, in mine, and it may be in yours, that what you'll read when you read the Lord said to my Lord, you read Lord and Lord, but the Lord and Lord look different, right? The Lord is in all capital letters. That signifies a different name for God in the original. The Lord said to my Lord, that's capital letter, lowercase o-r-d. Why? Because that's a different word than utilized in the first portion of the Scripture. That first word is Yahweh, a covenant-keeping God. It's, that's what, every time you see in your Old Testament or, or uh, the, the, the capital L-O-R-D, note that in the original, that that's a different name for God. That's Yahweh. That's Jehovah. That's the covenant-keeping God. That's the covenant, covenantal God. He covenants with His people, makes promises, and, and, um, and, and, and that, that this is, this is a, a, a high name for the Father Himself. Well, that Lord said to my Lord, 
David says, the Lord said to my Lord. This is Adonai. This is similar to the New Testament um, Lord Kurios. It means master. It means um, overseer. It means one who has authority over me. What you have in this text is you have the Father saying to the Son. And David recognizes Yahweh as covenant-keeping God. It says something to his God, which is Adonai or my Lord. That's the argument. Israel's covenant God said to my Lord, David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at the place of power. Sit at the, pres- the place of prestige. Sit at the place of honor. Sit at the place of authority. Sit at the place of dignity until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until your rule, your reign of the entire world is complete. And Jesus' argument is, is that if David calls him Lord, how is he then his son? That's the argument. That what you have here is an argument for Christ's deity. It wouldn't have been all that clear to the Old Testament writers or even the authors um, in the fullest sense like us. But we can look back through the Testament of the New Testament lens and see that almost every, arguably every single time that this is quoted in the New Testament by Paul or Peter or the writer of Hebrews or alluded to by the other prophets, it's always utilized to argue the deity of Christ. That the New Testament writers and the apostles particularly argue from this very passage that He is the Messiah, that He is the Christ. Um, and, in, and Jesus is looking at them with this question that is, that is no doubt difficult in their minds because He's arguing for the deity as well as the humanity of Christ. They believed in the humanity of the Christ. You know, and I, I got on, on Google um, this week and just began to search um, common Jewish beliefs even to this day. It was common in that day to believe that a Messiah would come, a king that would rule and reign over all the world. Um, but, it, but, but it was also common, not that all Jews believe this, but it was common to find that they did not believe that the Messiah was God or that He would be God, but that He would be a greater than man or in some sense and He would come and lead the way. And I found even some Jewish um, uh, teachings today that argue that very same thing, that they deny um, much of the Jewish community today the very deity of Christ. They believe in His humanity. They believe in a Messiah that would come um, and, and, and save their people. Uh, even from their sins. They believe much of the Old Testament Scripture, but Jesus is here to provoke their thinking on a portion that's missing. How in the world is it that he could be David's son if David calls him Lord? And this would have been huge. You know why? Because David is not just some insignificant guy in the nation of Israel. David is king over the nation of Israel. He's at the forefront. He's the leader of the known world in some sense. And if not that, the leader of the nation. He is, in some minds, um, the ultimate authority throughout the land. And now we have this man coming, this Christ, this Jesus, and he's arguing um, that there is someone greater that David submitted to. Um, Jesus, who is about to be crucified, um, is what he's going to argue is, is it will shortly be exalted to the right hand of the Father and have his enemies continuously one day ultimately brought under his feet. You see the paradox of the question, right? How is David's son also David's um, Lord? Again, Christ is provoking them to think through what they believe. They developed this concept of Messiah being David's son that was somewhat biblical. But they did not take it far enough to the point that they missed the Messiah altogether. He's standing right in front of them. 
And the great tragedy is not simply that they didn't see him, but they had created a theological paradigm that did not allow for even that possibility. The Messiah was one who was supposed to come as this great king and warrior who would trample upon Rome and set the nation free. But not only free, he would also build the kingdom in which they would rule and reign with him. Um, they had not created a theolo- there was not a theological category for anything else. Um, they held some correct teaching and some correct theology, but they did not take it far enough. You know, and that's still true of many of us today, right? I mean, how many people profess the name of Christ yet they do not believe in him as God? And we'll get to that in just a moment. They believe that, he, you know, that he's simply Savior and not Lord. That's what they're arguing for here. They're arguing for Savior yet not Lord. This man, this king, this Messiah who would come and he would lead and he would, and he would deliver them yet um, not Lord in the ultimate sense. And again, they prove the Christ indictment from earlier. You don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. So was this Old Testament teaching, and it's clear that it is. The scriptural teaching is that Christ would not only be David's son, but that Christ would also be David's Lord. You know, Isaiah chapter number 9, we read that earlier, there will be no end to His eternal throne. Verse 6 says there will be a child that will be born to us. A son will be given. You see that marriage between humanity of God. You see it between the deity of God. Particularly Isaiah chapter 11 and verses 1 through 10. You see that Messiah is not only the shoot of Jesse or would grow out of Jesse but, or be the offspring of Jesse, but that he would also be the root of Jesse is what we read earlier. You not only read that in Isaiah chapter number 11, um, but you also read that at the very end of your New Testament in Revelation chapter number um, 22 and verse number 6. The book almost concludes with this statement. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. What's the argument there in the book of Revelation? That Jesus Christ is not only the root or the, 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 that which grow, everything grows out of, but He's also the branch. He's not only God, but He's also man. He's not only the origin, but He is also that which would come from the origin. He's not only um, deity, but He's also humanity. Jeremiah 23, we read earlier as well, speaks of that one who is the Lord, our righteousness, um, who is the branch, Yahweh, our righteousness. The Scriptures are very clear that the Messiah would be both man and God. That He would be the root as well as the shoot. That He would be the Creator as well as in some sense the created. Not created in the sense that He ever had a divine um, creation in days past. He's always existed in eternity past and will in eternity future. But as Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that the pre-incarnate Christ, that, that, that portion of the deity um, who's existed with the Father for all eternity would do something unique in time and reality as He would become flesh and that He may dwell among us and become like us in every point. The, the writer to the Hebrew says, why? So that He could die for us as us. As Adam failed in the garden, he would complete um, with all righteousness and become sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. To do that, the root had to become the shoot. That's the idea. That the root must then become the branch and die as a branch. That, 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 
And you say, explain that to me. Like, we don't have enough time in here or in eternity. We're dealing with something here that volumes have been written on, that, that systematic theologies have been almost seemingly from a human mind exhausted to explain that great um, doctrine of God's um, deity, of Christ's deity as well as His humanity. I don't have an answer for you today other than they didn't have an answer for you today either. I'm just willing to dwell with attention of the question. How can he be David's son, yet David's Lord? You know, how could David look to him as he comes out of his loins and a, and, and a child? This is the argument, a child in her who, which should be, um, he should be the ultimate authority and tell him what to do. How can this child tell David what to do, the king of all the earth? Because he's not only the root, um, he's the shoot. God entered into mankind and He became a human being. Alright? Like He became us. Um, and at the end of the day, we just recognize that. We don't explain it in its fullness. You know? And if we could explain that in its fullness, I think if God put that doctrine in our minds in the fullness of all of its glory as God's thoughts are above earth, I think it would just blow white matter out of our ears. Like it can't be contained the reality of the and the significance of the eternal glories of God Himself and full of all of His majesty and glory and righteousness and holiness becoming something that 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 that, that is that is seemingly inferior and less than Him. Because that's what happens. It's not simply God, um, uh, deity dwelling in some human carcass. The, the text of Scripture teaches that He became us. But at the same time, he is greater than us. And that one who became us is also worthy to be worshipped as the greater than us. That this man is also God and thus he is to be worshipped as God. That's what he says. The, the, the Father, the Yahweh, Jehovah God said to my Lord, David recognized the Messiah that was to come, not only as a man, a king, who would, who would go out before them and be a great warrior in battle and secure the comforts of life, but he was a God to be worshipped, that he was a God to be um, bowed down before, and that the highest um, political party in all of the land was still not above this God. That's the idea that they wrestled with and ultimately came to the conclusion that they rejected. You know, and that's what Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us that um, that silenced them and they would ask him no more questions. Not because um, inherently they come to the conclusion of, of the argument from Old Testament Scripture that this guy's right, you know, and I should worship him. No, they clearly change their tactics. They give up on the questions um, because they can't answer exactly what um, is going on um, in that scenario. Something that they probably never thought out, but something that they've been scratching their heads over ever since. Um... And that's what you see at the end. You see, you see, many are pleased, but then you also see many are silenced. And it won't be long after this that they will take up their um, plot to kill him and carry it out in just a few short days. Many of them didn't want a God. They didn't want a God to rule over them. Um, they didn't want especially this man before us. This man Jesus, this son of a carpenter, this, you know, they didn't desire it. 
And that's the text. It's somewhat simple yet profound. It's somewhat um, below us and it makes sense because we just recognize it because we've been taught it. It's the Sunday school answer. You know, theologians throughout the last 2,000 years have just battled and argued and debated and fought and some have bled and died over the, the, the deity of Christ and the Messiah that would come. You know, and it's a reality that we come to and you're like, this morning you preach that text and you almost don't want to preach it because you all believe it, you know. And it just seems like it's something that doesn't need to be said. But maybe it does. Maybe it does. Because inevitably, whether we share in the same, um, whether we share in the same proclivity or the ideas of the Jewish people, um, many people today have a view of Christ, somewhat even biblical, yet falls short because he's nothing more than a God that we've made in our own image who goes out before us as Messiah and as King even, not for the purpose of being worshiped, but for the purpose of paving the way for our comforts and our pleasures. And it's a God after our own heart and not a God after his. So what can we learn in application? First, we can learn that he offers a gracious invitation to people like that. And to us. It very well again could be that the response of the young man and the reality that he's not far from the kingdom, that Jesus fills in the gap. Right? What was the young man missing? It seems that, that while he had so much right, he was missing something concerning Messiah and prohibited him from entering into the kingdom of God. And isn't that all of us at some point? Isn't it? We come into this world and we're brought up in a, in a supposed quote-unquote Christian nation. We all have attended Sunday school in some measure. We've all been to some sort of a revival meeting. We've all, if not that, we've been taught by our parents um, uh, some sense and some notion of who God is and, who, and even who Christ is. I think it's becoming more common today to find people who have no idea of who Christ is, but for the most part, I think all of us that are dwelling here um, grew up in a, at a different time and in a different world in which I was never sent to church. I was never taken by my mother or my father, um, but I was encouraged to love Jesus and to sing Jesus loves me, yet having no idea who the man was and having no idea that he was God and what he required of us. Thus God extends a gracious invitation to all who will receive him. God extends this gracious, this gracious invitation as He comes to all of those in a, with a rebel spirit and a, and a marred knowledge and, and a really uh, no, no way to come unto Him because there's no way we can fathom, um, fathom who He is with, with a limited, finite knowledge and ability that we have. There's no person smart enough. There's no person skilled enough. There's no person, that can, no, no great philosopher, no great rabbi who could ever come to this conclusion in and of Himself. Thus, God enters in and invades this world Himself. You know, the Messiah of Old Testament is prophesied as early as Genesis chapter 3, but in Psalm chapter 110, you find that there was this conversation in eternity past between the Father and the Son, that this would happen and that this would take place. That in the eternal counsel of God, um, He understood and knew that if there would ever be a people that would, that, that would gather together, if the nations would ever gather around Him, it would be not because of their um, inclination, but because of His intention and His purpose. 
That's what you find in Psalm chapter 110. You find this, this relationship between the Father and the Son and the power of the Spirit. One looks at the other and says, this is what I'm going to do. You know, the Lord said to my right, my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. How does that happen? Well, the New Testament writers tell us that, that, that in the humiliation, in Christ offering Himself up on Calvary and becoming sin for us, that He reached the heavens and the Father with a, uh, which satisfied the wrath of God but pleased the Lord. And, he, and thus God um, exalted Him, the Father, to the right hand of His majesty, Acts chapter number 2, in which He would rule and reign. That's what uh, everything, th this which happened in the New Testament was prophesied of old, even previous to Genesis chapter number 3. But not only that was it accomplished in times past, it is applied in time present. If that wasn't enough, God continues to operate through His Word today to bring us to that reality. Isn't that wonderful? Could it have been that very question that Christ brings to the forefront of His mind to challenge His own thinking and press Him into the kingdom of God? Maybe. And isn't that what the Lord does with all of us? He meets us where we are, not only then but now by the power of His Spirit with the Word that was spoken and preserved and inspired by God, doesn't He still operate even in this hour through the Word that's sharper than any two-edged sword and divides the very asunder, the thoughts and intents of our heart asunder? Isn't that amazing? I love talking to you. I love new membership meetings. I love, I love particularly meeting you. I love asking that first question, you know, when did you become a believer? It's always phenomenal. And one of the things that I love more than others, and this is just my own natural uh, personality and inclination, is I love it whenever somebody tells me that I was listening to a sermon that had nothing to do with the gospel. And God just made me alive, you know. Like He gave me new life. I don't know what it was about it at that moment. Like it doesn't seem like it should have happened in that period of time. It doesn't seem like it was anything. I wasn't really, uh, nobody sat down and persuaded me, you know. It was just like the Word of God went forth. You know, I have people come up to me afterwards and tell me, man, the Lord just blessed me on this thing and, and this is what He taught me through your sermon. I'm like, I didn't teach that at all. <laughs> you know, like it was there, no doubt, but that wasn't my intent. And how amazing God is that you could preach one sermon and have a purpose and an intent behind it. And I pray that God would do certain things with the intent of the text. But sometimes He goes above and all the time He goes above and beyond that. You know? Like He takes my persuasions and He makes eternal realities come to life in your heart. Like in the seeds that are planted, He brings to life and roots and out of that root shoots up just, just the Spirit of God that can never be accomplished through the, through, the, through the reality and the minds of men. Like that's what God does. That's what God's doing right there. That's what Christ is taking the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit and the, the power of God. He's applying it to these men's lives. He's preaching the gospel to them, asking them to question and examine their own hearts and to apply it, uh, their misunderstandings and to correct. And it's there to rebuke them and to correct them and to instruct them in righteousness. That's what Christ is doing here. It's a gracious invitation to receive Him both as God and as man. That's what the text teaches us, that Christ is both God and man. That He's not just a Messiah that comes forth and He's trying to pave the way and help you to live a happy life. He's God. And certainly the New Testament overflows with that, doesn't it? The evidences of the fact that He is God is just replete in the New Covenant, in the New Testament Scriptures. 
He shares in the mutual attributes of God. If, if that text in Psalm 110 is not enough, maybe all of the New Testament is as well. He, he shares in the attributes of God and His omnipotence. He claims to be the Creator. He's the commander of all the elements. He's the, the commander of all the creatures. He's the provider of food. He's the healer. He's the raiser of the dead. He's the forgiver of sin. And He's the judger of all. He's... Uh, his attributes of, of omnipresent. He was able to be everywhere at all times. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Even what is going on in the minds of men. He's holy. He's true. He's wise. He's sovereign. He's loving. He's eternal. He's glorious. He possessed all the attributes of God. He put them on display in human form. Um, and he accepted worship as a result of that. In fact, he doesn't just accept worship. He demands worship. He was to be sought in prayer. He was the source of all answered prayer. And He's the one who opened the resources of God to pour out the blessing of God on all His people. He is that great mediator between God and man. And that great mediator is both God and man. That's the idea. That's how He spans the gap. That He is not only God, but that He is also man of very man. Truly God and truly man. Not only is He God and man, but He's Lord. So that sounds like the same thing. It may be. But there's a lot of gods out there that people have. And they're not their Lord. And there's a lot of people out there that ascribe to some notion of a pagan um, identity or even a, a miscommunicated and, um, and a, a false Christ. There's many who bow down before um, a supposed God without ever really bowing down. You can have a God and Him not be Lord. Jesus Christ is not only both God and man, but He's also Lord. That's what David said. That's what the New Testament writers say. And guess what? That's what we should say. That He's presented here as Lord. Not as one who simply rules and reigns over some imaginary land or people. Or in heaven apart from this world. But He has in Matthew chapter 28 all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's sad that on many days like the Jewish people of Christ's day, we have a fundamental misunderstanding about who Christ is. In our minds, He's the one who goes before us to conquer the world in which we are ultimate benefactors. But that's not all that He is. He's not just going forth with unparalleled power and paving the way for leisure, comfort, or insert your God in that portion. But He's Lord. Thus we are to recognize that Jesus not only is David's Son, a mighty warrior who goes before but a man of subservience to David uh, nonetheless that he deserves. No, he is David's Lord as well as David's son. And he should be our Lord as well. David who stood as the ultimate and highest authority over all the land of Israel and all the men contained within it to turn, over, uh, to, to turn whichever way he desired. Still answered to my Lord as King. He knelt under his authority. To him he repented in Psalm chapter number 51. At any moment, he could have taken Nathan the prophet at his rebuke and had his head severed from his neck, yet he didn't. Why? Because he heard the word of the Lord. And he bowed his knee that day. And we have a, 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 the, the product and the fruit of that in Psalm chapter number 51 who said that even the king, essentially the king, is not above the king of kings. Why? Because the king of kings is just that, the king of all kings to whom they are to be subservient to. To Him, God was God and thus governed differently. And we should as well. From what I can understand, He's governed the universe, this God, since its existence. Otherwise, it would fall apart. 
Something significant happened, though, at the ascension, in which he takes his rightful place as the new covenant is inaugurated. He begins a new rule from the right hand of God the Father, as Psalm 110 teaches us. And that reign will continue until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. This is a picture of Christ being exalted to the right hand of God the Father and given a place of all power and authority. Philippians chapter number 2 is a picture given to us representative of the rule and the reign that he has even now. This is the message in which the New Testament church was born in. Acts 2.29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that is both dead and buried and is his tomb to this day. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that, that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on this throne. His foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This God, this Jesus God has raised up of all which we are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out that which you see and hear now. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Christ today is subduing His enemies even now. How? Through the Word and through the Gospel now preached and declared. And you say, I know what you're saying because we say it all the time. <laughs> it doesn't really look like that, does it? You look at America and you look at our, our nation's state and you look at um, everything around us and just the de-evolution of society, the decline in morality. And we could go on and on and on and on about all the things that are wrong with the world. And maybe it makes you, not theologically um, say, or, or doctrinally say, or openly say, um, it doesn't appear that Christ is seated on His throne, but in our hearts maybe we wonder, don't we? I mean, look around us. Well, Paul writes to Colossae, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, and now is he reconciled in his body flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Romans 5.10, For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That we are not to wait for a future time in which Jesus Christ will rule and reign. He reigns now. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father and He puts to end all rule and authority and power for He must reign, meaning He's reigning now. He must reign till He has put all of His enemies under His footstool. The last enemy that He will be destroyed is death. And just as those under His voice of the apostles asked the question in response to the truth, we too should ask, who were once enemies with God, men and brethren, what shall we do? I can tell you one thing. Matthew 28 says that He has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and disciple the nations. That God has been conquering enemies for the last 2,000 years and He will until He returns and puts a final end to it. And He conquered your heart, He conquered my heart, and He continues to change the world to the kingdom by which He rules, which is a true and a real kingdom that has very practical implications in this world. 
He reveals his identity, his authority, and his power to us through the gospel. That it's very important for us to remember today that Christ has not lost, nor is he losing. Not in America, not throughout all the world. I had a tremendous blessing this week to sit before um, a group of pastors who were seeing the gospel spread throughout the nations. One was a pastor in Africa who's currently involved in planting 15 to 20 churches who are established now. And one day he hopes to relinquish and pick up some more. Uh, one was there, and uh, one was from Chile, Mexico, sitting in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, who's, who's an avid church planner, seeing the gospel prevail. One of the men has been doing it for years in Kenya, raising up young men to go out and to preach the gospel. One will go to Portugal here in about a year or so, in which he will um, train up young men to send them out into the world. Got to hear the report of a young man who couldn't be more than 25 years old, who's taking his wife into a closed country, probably overrun by Islam, um, who is seeing the gospel being proclaimed and churches being planted underground and the gospel going forth and Jesus Christ still taking the victory over His enemies even to this day. That, that, that this is what the gospel does. That this is what the gospel has accomplished throughout ages past. And this is what the gospel continues to accomplish here and now. Why? Because they believe that Jesus Christ is King. And that if He is King, and that if He died for the nations, then Christ must receive the nations. But at the same time, that means, He uses a means to an end. And with the authority and power of God and the presence of God, because He goes with His always, that we are to go. And that that is the way that the kingdom is manifested not only here, but throughout all the world. It's in the government of His people who out of a love and a compassion and a gracious attitude towards Him because of the grace that has been bestowed knows that the greatest sin of all the world is that the world does not love Him. And that today there are places all throughout the world in which this, this King of kings, this Lord of lords, this Holy of holies is not worshipped. That God uh, demands the worship of every square inch of all that He has created, and that this day there are realms and crooks and crevices and entire nations who have no idea or clue who this God is. Thus we are to go. And that's the reason that the world is in the condition that it's in today, isn't it? Because we won't go. You know, um, I mean, we won't even go here, let alone across the world. We won't stand up for much of anything. You know, why? For the sake of evangelism. It's it's amazing how um, we cancel out our evangelism, or we cancel out Christian character and and doctrinal purity and a hundred other things for evangelism. And that's actually the way that we evangelize, right? Like we're unwilling to, to be Christians in the public square. We're unwilling to say anything that will offend anybody. We're unwilling to make a stance or take a stance on much of anything. Why? Because we don't want to offend. Let me tell you, there's some things that need, we need to offend people with, particularly the doctrine of Christ, you know? The, the, the gospel was never, was never given to be lived in isolation or, or treated as an inferior doctrine. But it was to be taken into the public square, not only here, but throughout all the world. 
And we are not to offend people in things that are secondary or even tertiary, but we are to live such a life that, as it was mentioned in Sunday school, is very evident to other people who God is in our lives. Right? If there are some things in which is worthy to take a stand for, there is a certain life in which should be lived, not, not in a sense of holier than thou, but because He's our Lord. There's a certain way that you men should carry yourselves at work. Why? Because Christ is not only God and man, He's Lord. There's certain things that you should do and you shouldn't do. There's a way that you should carry yourself in a way that you shouldn't simply because He's the God of your life. He's the, he's the, he, he is Lord. There's a certain way in which we, we should be provoked in, in very practical ways to carry out the Christian life in our life every single day um, simply based upon this thing. Not to go out and to brawl and to make, and to make um, schisms and divisions just simply because we love tension. But there is a way that, that even love incarnate Christ here stands and contends for the truth of God. Doesn't He? Doesn't He go into the temple ground? Doesn't He preach the gospel of the kingdom? Doesn't He engage the crowds? Particularly with a gospel message and the deity of Christ and a proper understanding of Messiah and who God is? Does He not live among the people? Does He not breathe in and breathe out the very life of God? You say well, that's because He's God, but He's also man. And He's the very embodiment of all that we are to be and all that He died for us to be. Thus, when that, 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 that gospel goes forth and the Word goes forth and takes root in our life, it produces a fruit of righteousness um, in which we submit to our Lord to carry out um, the character, the nature, and the practice that He has ordained and outlined within the very Scriptures, not because um, we're trying to earn any salvation or life uh, beyond this, but simply because He's our Lord. And we love Him with everything that we are because of the love that He's expressed for us. And that we are to contend for the truth not only here behind a pulpit in isolation and security where I know that people will come up and they'll say amen, but out there. And that doesn't mean that we go out and we hold signs on the sidewalk and open air preach, but it does mean that in whatever capacity that God has ordained providentially for you to carry out life in this world, that whatever it is, He is to be Lord over that. Whether it's ladies at home raising their children or, or whether it's men at work engaging in, in labor or it's me as a pastor or it's you as a child, a little boy or a little girl under the authority of your, your parents. Paul instructs for you to obey your uh, parents in the Lord for this is right. The little ones, Christ is Lord of your life. And He is to be manifested as Lord in loving, joyful, willing obedience to your parents. That, that every single square inch, every image bearer of God, He is Lord over. And that every person is to submit to that. And we are to lovingly and joyfully sacrifice day in and day out to live for that and to carry that into the public square that God has providentially ordained. We are to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and contend for the truth, not only doctrinally and vocally, but also practically or in a life of holiness. And that's what Paul says in um, it Philippians chapter number 3. We are to shine forth His lights in the midst of this wicked and perverse nation. How, how are we going to do that, Paul? By not murmuring. Living a certain type of lifestyle that is clothed with holiness. Not to be holier than thou, but to be holy because He's made me holy and He's Lord of my life. We're to be that city that is set upon a hill. Why? So that they may see our good works. 
and glorify our Father which is in, in heaven. That Jesus, we learn from this text that, 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 that Jesus Christ enters into the world according to the plan of the Father and a conversation, an eternal counsel from ages past um, to, 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 to humiliate Himself and sacrifice the unthinkable that He might buy for Himself a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue in whom the world would look at and say that, 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 that He has a God. And that's, you know, whether I believe in Him or not. Like that guy, God, is this morning at Joseph, right? This morning in Sunday school. Even the pagans looked and said, God is with, God is with him. You know? Has anybody ever looked at our lives and said, God is with that guy? I don't get everything about him, or I don't get everything about her, but there's no doubt he's living for something else. And it's not himself, and it's not herself, you know? I see the way that she deals with her children, you know? Like, and I, it would run me up the wall, see many people say. But man, she just has a love, and I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't understand any of it. Like if, that's what we need to see. That's what we need to be. Again, not inherently to be that, but simply to be that. Not to do that, but to be that. Isn't that what Christians are? They're Christians. They don't just follow Christ. They follow Christ because they are Christians. They're little Christs. God has accomplished something in our hearts and in our lives such that it just overtakes us and overwhelms us. And this fruit, it, it produces by the power of the Spirit um, and we simply be, right? Be a light. Be salt. Don't salt things. And don't project light. But be it. Why? So that God may be glorified. Jehovah, Yahweh said to my Lord that this is why all this exists. That's why. To the glory of God that He would have a people that would display His character and nature to the world. How long is he going to reign? Until he puts all of his enemies under his footstool. So how long are we to do this? Until that day. That's to be our aim. That's to be our goal. Is that the God you serve today? Is that the God that I serve? This is a question I've been wrestling with all week. You know. And do I believe that Jesus Christ is actually ruling and reigning? Or have I bought into the, the mentality of a declining culture and it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway? I can tell you this as proof that it's not. You know, Jesus Christ is still conquering enemies today by his word and by his power. And he will. So church, let us be faithful. Let us be faithful in the things that God has called us to. There'll be people at the end of it, yeah, that, that are silenced and they walk away. And they love nothing more than the, the crucify Christ. But then there'll be those people for whom Christ died that will no doubt be provoked by the spirit of God according to the truth. And God will pierce their hearts. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Because I'm not sure that on a lot of days I do. You know? I feel like on a lot of days we just serve God because we know it's the right thing to do. But we don't serve God because we believe that He can do and is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask for thing. You know? And I desire to see God work. Because this is why Jehovah sent my Lord. And he's worthy to receive that which he desires. So let's give it to him. And let's believe that he's able to do it. If that's the very purpose for which he gave it. His only son.
Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories of Christ. Father, we thank you for the blessing it is to know you. And we know that to know you is eternal life. To know your son is eternal life. Father, it's... um. truly humbling to know you because I shouldn't know you. I shouldn't be here today. Father, I should be. I should be in hell. How in the world could a holy God ever accept anybody like us? And then my Lord says to my Lord, go, make a people for your name's sake that'll live and honor you for the rest of your days, their days, till my enemies are made my footstool. Father, this is your work. I love you simply because you love me and you are worthy to be praised. Father, and you're so patient with us and so kind and so gracious. God, just to keep bringing us back helping us persevere, loving us like nobody else has loved us. God, we praise you for that. God, we thank you for what you're accomplishing in us. God, I thank you for this church and just the bride that sits before me. Father, how beautiful she is. God, just arrayed in all of her glory. Father, what you're accomplishing in and through her. God, I know that it may have sounded like I was harsh. I'm so, I hope that they don't believe that. Father, they're... Um, Maybe I'm harsh because I'm harsh on myself. But um, God, this people here at Christ Bible Church is one of the great means that you've just helped me persevere, Father. And you've done it by displaying your beauty through them. God, I've been forgiven by them. I've been um, sacrificed on your behalf, Father, by them. I've been loved by them. I've been extended so much graciousness by them. Father, and I look in them and I see you. Father, I see the purpose for which your son died and it just it boggles my mind, God, that you have that much love. So praise you for that. God, would you overwhelm us with that love that would just provoke us um, to submit to you in all areas of life, Father, whether it's at home as a father. Father, I need to be more faithful. God, I need to be a more loving husband. I need to be more sacrificial. I need to be a better pastor. I need to be a better employee. Uh, Not better just because, but Father, better because your name depends upon it. The glory of your name, Father, is somewhat contingent upon that, it seems. Father, I, I just pray that you'll help me to be faithful. And I don't want to do great things, but I do want to be faithful. So, Father, would you work in us as a church and as individuals, Father, um, faithfulness such that honors you. Um, so just show us, Father, what you want us to do. God, give us by your power and your spirit and your grace and your love the faith to believe that we can do it because you're worthy. God, if we're trying to build kingdom up here at all, according to our own power, God, just tear it down. Whatever you need to do, rip it apart. God, and direct us in how to honor you with our lives.
because you're not only God and man, but you're Lord. So Father, teach us how to lovingly, joyfully, willfully, um, thrivingly submit to you, to be courageous and to contend for the faith, Father, in the way that your son did. Father, this is what we need, and we're trusting you to accomplish it, Father, because I don't know how to do it. And if you don't, it won't happen. So, Father, we leave this prayer in your hands to do with it what you will, trusting that it, if it honors you, you'll bring it to pass. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In Jesus' name, amen.